Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to Novel Dialogue, a podcast sponsored by the Society for Novel Studies and produced in partnership with Public Books, an online magazine of arts, ideas, and scholarship. I'm Sarah Wasserman, and I'm one of the hosts for season three. You'll be hearing from a few hosts this season, including Novel Dialogue's fabulous founders, Arti Vade and John Plotz. Today, I have the honor of welcoming Chang Ray Lee, who will be in conversation with the scholar and critic Anne Anlin Chang. I doubt listeners to this podcast need an introduction to either of today's guests, but I have the good fortune of introducing them anyways. Chang Ray Lee is the author of Native Speaker, winner of the Hemingway Foundation Penn Award for First Fiction, as well as On Such a Full Sea, A Gesture Life, Aloft, and The Surrendered, which won the Dayton Peace Prize and was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. His most recent best-selling novel is My Year Abroad, published in 2021 by Riverhead Books. Also in 2021, Chang Rei won the Award of Merit for the novel from the American Academy of Arts and Letters. He teaches writing at Stanford University. Anne Chang is professor of English at Princeton University, where she is also affiliated faculty in the Program in American Studies, the Program in Gender and Sexuality Studies, and the Committee on Film Studies. She is the author of The Melancholy of Race, Psychoanalysis, Assimilation, and Hidden Grief, as well as Second Skin, Josephine Baker and the Modern Surface, and most recently, Ornamentalism. You can also find her writing in the New York Times, the Huffington Post, and the Atlantic. Before I get out of the way and let Chang Ray and Anne do the talking, which is my real job here, I want to note that the two of them have some institutional overlaps. Chang Rei was professor of creative writing at Princeton and director of Princeton's program in creative writing, and Anne received her master's in English and creative writing from Stanford. I mention this because place in Chang Rei's novels, the quiet suburban town of Bedley Run in A Gesture Life, the near future labor settlement of Beemore in On Such a Full Sea, or the frozen yogurt shop in a town that sure seems a lot like Princeton at the beginning of my year abroad is central. Through his breathtaking prose, Chang Rei brings forth both familiar and strange new places to life. But with that, I shall now recede into my place, the background, and turn it over to you, to Anne and Chang Rei. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Sarah. Hi, Chang Rei. So good to be talking to you. Thank you for making the time. Oh, wonderful to, to connect with you again, Anne. Well, you know, this has been such an extraordinary year in, well, you know, in all kinds of ways. Just, you know, I've recently I've started to really sort of compulsively list things that have gone wrong, you know, 
uh, a pandemic that is hitting the entire world, targeting the especially weak and vulnerable, environmental disaster, creating fire on one end of the US and flooding on the other. There's, you know, um, African-Americans being killed every day. There's Asian-Americans being attacked on the streets. There is, you know, um, sort of, you know, January the 6th, the insurrection of the Capitol. Um, it just, it, there's just so much going on that makes me feel like we are living in a dystopic <laughs> future. Um, so I was wondering whether, well, just sort of generally, I, I'm curious, how has the pandemic and everything else um, has influenced the way you write? If it has, I, you know, I don't know. Well, I don't know about you, but, you know, probably when it first happened last spring, I guess, when we were all under lockdown initially, I had a lot of trouble and I, it felt very similar to the time after 9-11. I remember mm. after 9-11 for about six months, uh, I was in the middle of a project and, and all of a sudden everything uh, all, every dimension seemed to to skew and to warp. And so nothing that I was writing seemed to have any traction or, or the gravity. Um, it was just kind of floating there. And I think that uh, I, I kind of felt the same way. I think we all did. We didn't quite unsure of our footing. Yeah. Uh, what, what, you know, as, and as the litany of things that you just mentioned, I mean, th there are plenty of bad things going on anyway. <laughs> and then this was the, this was the, the crowning thing that I think uh, really made us feel unmoored. And, and I've always, I've always tried to, you know, in, in some ways my work has been about unmooring and being unmoored. Uh, but in my life, I've always tried to moor myself quite, <laughs> quite rigidly, <laughs> uh, both out of fear and uncertainty, and, um, but, but also kind of hope that you'd find something in that mooring. Yeah. And, um, and, and I guess uh, it took me a while to get back to it, um, you know, to, to the work and, and to what I was really caring about, really interested in. And, and I think that's always the, the challenge for us writers is it's not that, you know, you can write about anything, but, and you, and if you, you know, you can write decently about anything, but if you're going to write in a worthwhile way about something, as I always tell my students, um, you have to really understand why you care. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I mean, I have to say one thing I realized during the pandemic was um, that one is lucky if one could just find things to do that feels meaningful. I mean, actually, that was that just seems like um, it, it's in some ways such a basic thing and so difficult uh, throughout it. But just straight, I want to sort of figure out the timeline here a little bit because you know the um, my year abroad, your new novel just came out. But when did you finish it? I was doing the the last bit of editing uh, during the pandemic. Mm. Uh, at the, just just at the beginning, so the book had been pretty much finished. Uh, mm -hmm. the story and nothing really major changed. So, so it was, it was a book that it uh, took, frankly, took quite a, quite a bit of time uh, from about five years of writing on and off. And mm -hmm. um, so it was, a, it was a strange, I was, I was, I was happy that I wasn't trying to generate new material mm -hmm. after that point um, mm -hmm. and just looking back on things. But curiously, of course, because the book is, um, well, it's both about uh, a certain kind of <laughs> peripatetic yearning <laughs> and um, and a lot of movement, but it's also a book that that includes a lot of 
uh, cloistering um, and, um, and, and whether it's choice or not uh, remaining in place. And, and so, uh, so it, as a reader of the book, uh, I, I sort of became fascinated with the book as, uh, as maybe something that, you know, I don't know, maybe I was connecting with something that was happening uh, in our world, uh, maybe something that was connecting in, in terms of, you know, all the things that not would go on, but were going on anyway, our sense of being siloed, I think, uh, mm-hmm. over the last four years and, um, and, and our wish, a wish to, to go away. I was sort of curious for my year abroad, what was the hardest thing about this particular book for you? This book, it, it surprised me, I think, because of the way it ends up ranging, and mm-hmm. um, you know that it it I didn't conceive of it as a book that would um, would spread out as widely as it does. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew that there was going to be an adventure tale, um, and I knew that there would be a domestic part of the novel where where people were in in some sense, you know. Uh, anchored, um, but I didn't know both of those the 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 poles of those those experiences and context. Um, I didn't know uh, the scale of that uh, in, in in each area, and then I didn't quite understand, uh, even though I thought about it a lot, how those two things would integrate and then unify uh, in some way. Um, and so I think that was the. That was probably the toughest part for me. I I, I understood the characters early on. Um, I understood some of their concerns early on, um, but but how I brought in the world, I suppose, mm-hmm. uh, and that's always the question, right? I mean, it's the context of a of a novel, the the setting, if if it's the setting or a certain kind of psychic setting. Um, that's the part that. Uh, that readers, I think, sometimes think, oh, he'll just fill that in as a kind of stage backdrop. But it's, of course, not. It has to be completely integrated and, and relevant uh, to, to, to the action, to the, to the mindset, uh, to the spirit of, of the people inside of it or in front of it. Uh, so it's not that it's background or foreground. It's just it's part of the atmosphere. Well, given, given the scope and given the um, the movements, the, the many different pieces, the many different characters. Um, and this is a dumb question, but I'm just so curious. Do you actually are you one of those people who do like no cards? <laughs> How do you keep track? <laughs> yeah, a, fr- a friend of mine actually who who, who read the book asked me a, a kind of related question. He said, "You know, Tiller, who's the who's the uh, mm-hmm. narrator of the novel." He has so many little observations and asides and little thoughts and and my friend enjoyed those. He said, "But there's so many of those. Do you just have a list of things that people think about <laughs> and then use and then look for a place to fit them in?" And and I said, "You know, I I'd be much more organized and, and much less insane if I did have that list." <laughs> but. Uh, and and a lot and a lot you know just happier, but I don't, and it's mm-hmm. it's just something that uh, and it's the same that goes for say plot or you know little episodes, uh, and this is something that I I've always kind of not 
not embraced, but maybe just accepted and maybe embraced later in my career, mm -hmm. particularly with the, the writing of On Such a Full Sea, my last novel, which is very episodic, um, again, a kind of adventure tale. And, and I, I guess my, my aesthetic um, uh, process includes uh, a certain kind of headlong uh, rush into whatever comes next, <laughs> which actually fit very well with this book. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Um, but but uh, but that's that's taken me a long time to to feel comfortable doing um, to try to quell the fear, all the fears that are associated with that kind of uh, that kind of um, well, uh, I guess purposeful um, purposeful escape and getting lost. You know, um, and and that's that's something that 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 I guess it's hard to explain. It's just to really convince people that that's the way I do it. But but that is. I wonder if I might jump in and ask a follow up question to Anne's, um, because I agree with her that that to some degree every novel you write feels like it's in a different genre. It's something I, I really admire, and it's interesting to hear you talk about the adventure novel because we might also think about my year abroad of course as a as a food food a riff on food writing or a riff on the great american novel but it seems to me that so many of your books have both what you're talking about this kind of epic sweep and braiding lots of different strands together whether it's place or time um but you know you also work on the granular especially with detail at the sentence level but i'm curious if you like to read those kinds of books? Do you like to read or, or teach your students novels that have a, a certain kind of ambitious sprawl to them? Or do you like something completely different from what you write? Well, most of my reading is, a lot of my reading is, is especially fiction, is actually associated with my teaching. And um, so to be honest, I don't read as much fiction on, just for my own pleasure as much as I'd like. But and that reading is is typically short stories, strangely. <laughs> you know, so and just that's because my students, that's what they're working on. And um, and in some ways, uh, you know, for the purposes of class or workshop, short stories are, are, are you know, just just much more available in so many ways uh, for discussion, um, for a concentrated discussion. So, so it's interesting that your, you know, your question is interesting to me because, um, because I focus so much as a teacher and as a reader in, in the granular <laughs> and in, 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 you know, a scale that in which, and I love this, I love teaching stories. In fact, I love teaching very short, sto short stories um, where, where my students and I can look at the whole thing all at once. And in the sense of that, it's this perfect little world, perfect, of course, in quotes. But, but, but what I do when I when I write is, in some ways, cast all that off. Um, I suppose with the 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 you know these longer form stories that I'm that I've always worked on and always loved working on. I think it's a certain love of that imperfect. Uh, the the love of accident, the love of mayhem, um, and even if it's a quiet book and a very controlled book, say you know with a character who's who's really circumspect and meticulous and careful, um, I I think that's when I look even more inside, more deeply for that mayhem. Yeah. Um, 
often may be expressed in some kind of darkness, um, some kind of secret, uh, some kind of madness. I was thinking about how, as, as, at least in, um, in cinema, how the Asian continue to be associated with capital in some intense way. So on one, ex- on one extreme, you have crazy rich Asian, right? Where, um, um, what the, where the cap, you know, so conspicuous consumption is, um, it's sort of like the euphoria of conspicuous consumption. And then on the other spectrum might be something like parasite where it is the, the, the utter um, degradation, right? A result of, of capitalism. And so the Asian is somehow, you know, either the euphoric symbol or the, or the parasitic degraded um, figure. Um, and in, in, your, in, in your new book, In My Year Abroad, I was thinking about how capitalism um, has swallowed up the idea of cosmopolitanism, right? So that, you know, so that there's a way in which cosmopolitanism is really nothing but an expression of capitalist um, of desire, right? Or fulfillment. I mean, it's the same with crazy rich Asian, like, because you, you look at crazy rich Asian and you think, oh, you have these super cosmopolitan Asians who are almost nationless in the sense that they can go to Europe, they can go, you know, they're educated in Britain, they, they you know, they live in Paris, etc. But it turns out like all their values are turned out to be basically like Gucci and Dior. Yes. <laughs> like, it turns out like their cosmopolitanism is just basically like Western capitalism. Yeah. Um, and so I'm sort of curious, like in, in um, how, how do you think about the possibility of a kind of global citizenship? Um, is it even possible in the world of my year abroad? Well, it's been it's been hijacked by you know that street. I remember walking in Amsterdam. Of course, you know we know why we we think we go to Amsterdam, right? We want those the beautiful canals and <laughs> the the houses and um, you know that 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 old world feel. And but there's this particular street where I happened to be staying in Amsterdam. It was just a friend's place, and it was just that street. It was the same street with Gucci, Prada, Valentino. The, and I saw the same street, of course, in Venice when I was here. There, <laughs> it was, in fact, I, I think that it must be the same developer. Um, so we have this veneer of cosmopolitanism, but in fact, it's very, very provincial. But provincial, of course, at an elite, you know, mm-hmm. super, um, super rarefied level. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, when going back to what you said before about a certain kind of optimization. Uh, I think particularly Asians too, the, the way Asians are represented and the way that we, we see ourselves is that we're sort of like, uh, in, maybe this is an offshoot of the model minority notion is that we're sort of optimized capitalist, <laughs> you know, tools, mm-hmm. right? And that if we're not, as we see in Parasite, um, then we're utter failures, uh, degraded, degenerate, uh, you know, less less than... Yeah, live in the basement. <laughs> yeah, yeah, literally live in the basement. Uh, so I don't know that I don't know that it's it that that kind of what what we know of as cosmopolitanism now. Yeah. Um, which I think ultimately, I think the hope, of course, is that ultimately humanistically, it's about a certain kind of brotherhood. Mm, yeah. Right. That that we if we're nationalists, the the best side of that is that right, we right. can speak across. Right. Yeah. Uh, politics and right. uh, but I think that again is 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 an is a huge is in huge risk yeah. uh, that that um, that I don't know that that's possible anymore I know uh, I don't know what else I don't know how we get back to that though um, 
Um, and, and that's that's something that that I think is a real anxiety in, in a lot of my work, actually, and it's particularly in my year abroad. Actually, listening to you, it certainly occurs. It suddenly occurs to me that that there is actually um, there there is actually a moment in the novel where I think we get a vision of something that is that is bond or community, but not capitalist. That is kind of like a resistance to all that. It's short lived. It's very temporary. But it's a, it's basically the, the the community kitchen table that Tiller. Mm. Yes, <laughs> that's right. Well, and b- yeah. because well, you know, his Tiller's, you know, a sort of adopted son, I suppose, yeah, Victor Junior. Yeah. He's the, uh, you know, he's the child chef prodigy, and uh, and you know, people have asked me a lot about that section. Like, why, you know, it's interesting, but why did why did you go into all this food stuff? And I always say that it's not so much about the food. I mean, food can be fun and it can be literally savory, but but ultimately, what is food about, right? Food is about being human. Food is about uh, understanding that, uh, you know, in a, in a materialist sense, you know, the philosophical materialist sense that, that and the physical, in, in terms of physicalism, that that's all we are. And, the, and that's the way food is the, um, is the medium by which uh, we can connect with each other. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the and that's the only way I think and it's sort of a sad commentary I think about bringing people together, um, but it's also the most essential and basic one, the foundational one. Um, mm. And I guess I wanted, you know, after all the things that Tiller has gone through in the course of his travels with Pong, his issues with his his family, uh, his issues with himself, I think I wanted him to again get back to very basic kinds of activities. And, and and modi where he's 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 trying to connect up with something um, that is actually real that is undeniable that can't be parsed or mm-hmm. or or really to in you know in philosophized uh, mm-hmm. to some to some abstractness i think uh, it's very different i do think it's very important in the novel because you know if if in the capitalist world which is mostly the world in the novel you know you're you're eaten you eat or you be eaten, right? Those are the two options. Um, and so I think the table, right, that he creates um, where he doesn't get paid for it and he doesn't, you know, it's just, you know, it's, just, it's actually a, and, and, and of course you couldn't last forever, but still um, having that moment, it's, you know, it's actually a very, I, I actually found that I needed those moments in order to, in order to sort of survive what was to me, um, very harsh about a lot of the world, right, in which he lives. Um, and, and so one of the things I wanted to ask you um, to do, if I, I, I was going to ask you to read a, a passage um, because it is, well, for several reasons. One, because it is a really beautiful example of the way in which your um, prose is, on the one hand, lucid, but on the other hand, incredibly layered and evocative. And he also addresses the other thing that I think is very, what I find very hard um, about the book, um, which is Tiller's sort of transcendental orphanness or homelessness. I know he still has his father, um, but he is a character who's really unmoored, you know, um, and what's behind the unmooring is the haunting of his mother. Um, and so I was wondering if you could, do you have your book with you? Yeah, I do. 
Okay. Oh, good. Um, so, like, um, so I would, I was going to ask you to start on the bottom of um sixty four, mm -hmm. um, and then that. go to the you know the end of sixty five if you don't mind. Okay, sure, sure. Val nodded, though she was clearly unsure of what that meant, tech or metaphor wise. I wasn't sure either, though I was already screening the one random picture of my mother that my dad left up for a while. He and my mother didn't have many photographs on display anyway, and most of those were just of me. This one of her was on the kitchen desk for a while after she split, a shot of her solo, taken during the, my first couple of years. I know because you can see the front part of a stroller with a sky blue socked pixie foot at the corner of the frame. One day it was gone and I hardly missed it. Like what happens when a huge tree comes down after a storm? You think the bright new hole in the sky is never going to get filled. But then a few days later, everything is somehow recalibrated, and it's as if the tree never existed. Anyway, in the picture she was kneeling, as if she was retrieving a rattle I had dropped beside the stroller. And for some reason, Clark thought this would make an interesting shot, which, to be honest, it is. She's wearing jeans and a slate gray blouse with the sleeves rolled up, and her hair is wrapped in a blue and white checked bandana, which I don't recall her otherwise using. And she's got these huge round dark sunglasses on, though it's clearly not a sunny day, the backdrop more like the color of her blouse. She's not looking at the camera, but gazing errantly past the picture taker, maybe to the horizon. And the funny thing is, this even when I was st staring directly at it, it was tough to be sure it was truly her. In fact, you could wonder if this person was trying to veil herself in the way a person in witness protection, ha ha, would, not just with the obscuring costume of the glasses and bandana, but with an expression to the world that wasn't gleeful or glum, keen or disinterested, and only remarkable in that it was thoroughly, totally null. And although I can conjure her in various moments, those moments have steadily melded into one another to the point that the whole has become this mash. She's become a woman made of her woman versions, stacked in ghosted layers. This final misaligned image that flickers in and out, in and out, in a self-perpetuating cycle. I guess we each construct our own purgatory. So this must be mine. That is just so, it's so exquisite, so painful. You know, the picture that no longer exists, but that he still remembers so clearly. And then within the picture, his own fragmentary presence, a foot, you know, um, the mother's um, already absence in the picture. It's just so exquisite. And of course the connection to Val, um, the, with the witness protection, um, but the you know there's a way in which the not you know it's the, the and you know Taylor's very like unsentimental as a speaker, um, and yet throughout this novel and most intensely here, but all throughout the novel, the figure of the mother um, haunts um, you know Tiller, making you think that you know. <clears throat> you know, she's a shadow behind Val, she's a shadow behind Pong, she's a shadow behind him, you know, running all over the world. Um, so I, 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 I um, anyway, I just, I don't really have a question about it. I just want to observe that this is one of the, it's just, a, it's just an exquisite example of the ways in which you capture this, you know, the psychological depth of a character who is not so interested in telling you about his psychological death. <laughs> no, he's, he's resisting it the whole time. And he, yeah. he has this agreement with Val not to tell, you know, talk about family, but of course, you know, as any reader, as a, you know, astute reader should know is that whenever a character says something like that, that's exactly what they want to talk about the whole time. And this, this scene, um, I'm, I'm, 
I hadn't read it in, you know, since I probably wrote it. Um, but, um, but it's, uh, it haunts me a little bit because I think that's how, I think we all remember our lost ones, you know, um, that they, they flicker in and out, but of course they're always there. Um, and that's, that's the, you know, it's the, it's the threat or the, uh, the specter of actually flickering out for good that, that is, is so unsettling. Um, and maybe it makes us hold on so, so much tighter. And this is something for Tiller particularly, of course, is that, yes, this is the, this is the, the chasm. This is the, this is the, the initial unmooring that in which everything, his whole world, even though he, he's, it's, he doesn't wear it on his sleeve. It's, it's the thing that sets him off into his life and the story that, that in, in with such imbalance, imbalance, um, uh, and uh, and I didn't want to again. I, I didn't want to go into it as much as I think you know maybe a different writer that I was would have. Um, maybe because I've written about my own mother's mother and losing my mother so often during the years, but um, but I did want it to be there uh, as a, another world in this other you know a, a, a companion world to the world that we see. Yeah, you know, it's, this so is the the hidden one. Yeah. And that's what's so exquisite, right? That you feel the presence of that, that other world, the shadow of it, it's formative, um, it's uh, as a kind of formative grief, um, though never explicitly or elaborately, you know, foregrounded, um, but nonetheless incredibly haunting um, for, its, for its own spectrality. So it's um, really beautiful. And for me, that is one of the more haunting passages as well. I was gonna ask why, because um, I do, I love this passage too, because I think in so many of your novels, you somehow manage to bring together disinterested or repressed characters with this exuberant prose. It's, it almost feels like a, a magic trick that those two things can work together. But when you were talking about this passage and, and reading it today, you were talking about feeling haunted by it. And one, one question that often gets asked in, in the podcast more generally is, you know, about your relationship to your own books once they're done. You know, do you have favorites among them? Can you stand them? Do you look back and think, oh no, I could have done this differently. What happens once, once one of these novels comes into the world aside from, from haunting you perhaps? Well, uh, I try not to let them haunt me because I try, frankly, I, I don't, think about them very much until I until we have conversations. But I think and I think that's just a self preservation uh, mechanism. <laughs> because um, because as as you know, um, both of you, I mean, you know, as writers, as thinkers, there's so many things that we'd like to revise, to edit, to go back, especially, you know, as a fiction writer, it's just endless. The choices are endless to begin with in in, in originating these things. And then they, they, even that infinity is multiplied when looking back. <laughs> so, uh, so it's, uh, it, it's just inviting madness. But, but for me, I, I think I've, I've tried to take the longer view, a kind of orbital view on, on my work. Um, and not to say, I, I just, I, I, it's, I'm not trying to be falsely modest or anything like that. I just, I, I see it as just these little scratches that, I did once, and then I'm moving on. Um, and I think that's the only way that uh, I can continue to write new work. I think that if, you, if I think too much, and I know if I think too much about how things turned out and, 
it, it would be impossible to generate uh, new ideas and new energy. I feel as if, um, you know, my job is to kind of, you know, like as Nietzsche said, to love fate, mm -hmm. to, to love what happened. Um, not love, I like, you know, adore, but just, just accept it, truly mm -hmm. embrace it and just put it away and see what happens next. Can you tell us what you're working on now? Well, I'm working. Yeah, I'm working on a story set in um, the '70s. Um, it's kind of an auto, you know, semi-autobiographical novel. It's a novel. It's not. A, it's not a memoir about um, uh, a young Korean American kid and his family, new immigrants in the New York area, and and uh, a little episode that happens in their lives one summer. It's just a little, a little book. Uh, but uh, but I've always wanted to write about that time. Um, and that, uh, that the, 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 I guess the, the mindset that we had and the, the feeling that we had as a young immigrant family um, before, you know, we were educated, before uh, we made it, before all those other things, uh, when things were, when life was um, uh, quite, uh, you know, I, I guess quite arresting every day. <laughs> and and uh, uh, so so that's what I'm working on now. Wonderful. It sounds great. Yeah, we hope you, for the sake of the readers, don't look back at the old books, but do look back to the 70s, I guess, is the, is the paradox yeah. here. But um, in closing, so Novel Dialogue always ends the show by asking a signature question. And this season, our signature question is the following. It's if you could snap your fingers and suddenly have one extraordinary new talent. What would it be? <laughs> well, I've always, always, always uh, wanted to be a painter. I always, I always thought that that would be amazing. I'd always thought also be a great musician, but, but, um, but I, I, I love the idea of silently uh, creating something that was just exploded visually, and <laughs> and and I wish I could. Uh, I wish I could draw. I wish I could paint. I wish I could. Um, I wish I could do those things. And maybe that's it's something that I would never have thought I'd be interested in when I was younger. But maybe as I maybe I'm I'm much more visual now. Maybe because I like to sit around and just look at things. <laughs> <laughs> and the more you look at things, the more you realize that there's there's so much detail. There's so much in intricacy, um, mm -hmm. and not just to represent it, but to to imagine new new mm -hmm. kinds of complexities would be cool visual it seems so unfair Changri. what our listeners uh, what our listeners can't know is that Anne is sitting in front of a virtual background which is her own artwork so oh, wow. we have well, we have an artist among us I making was, uh, <laughs> making those of us who wish we could draw or paint yeah. long for it even more which feels in keeping with the spirit of longing and yearning from today's yeah. conversation well you know something Cherry, it's funny that you said it because you know for me it's being like therapy it is it is a it is being able to be quiet and concentrate and really look, um, but an activity in which I have no ego. Like, yes. you know, it's not like writing, I have no stakes in it. Um, yes. And so it is it's very peaceful for me. Yes. Yeah. And also well, it's really fun to create something with your hands, you know? Exactly. It's very, it's very tactile. Yeah. And because that the certain kind of lingual articula articulation is a different thing, right? And, and right. something right. non-lingual, you know, in tactile is, um, is, is amazing. So yeah, yeah. good for you. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> well, thank you so much to both of you for your time and your insights today. In parting, I'll remind listeners that Chang Rui Li's latest novel, My Year Abroad, is available in bookstores everywhere. That's brick and mortar and online bookstores. And we are grateful to the Society for Novel Studies for its sponsorship, to Public Books for its partnership, and we wish to thank Duke and Brandeis Universities for their support. Hannah Jorgensen is our production intern and designer, Claire Ogden, our sound engineer, and James Dranny, our blog editor. Thanks so much for listening. Be well and keep reading. Mm -hmm.